Hey, Jay, what exactly is Zaladane's deal? Really, Miles? Really? We go on hiatus for three months, and this is what you come back with, freaking Zaladane? I, I know, I know, but it's, it's germane. <sighs> Fine. Zaladane is the maybe kind of immortal, or at least really long-lived, high priestess of the Petrified Man, who may or may not also be a sun god. Zaladane? No, the Petrified Man. Anyway, he got killed, so she made another, but the X-Men and Kazar took them down. And Kazar is the Savage Land guy with the tiger, right? Right. Although, yeah, I think he might actually technically be a British citizen. I mean, I should have guessed. You know, what with Kazar being such a traditional British name and all that. Yeah, very funny. No, no, no. The Man-Apes named him that because his best bro was a tiger. His given name's actually Kevin Plunder. I... Uh, I'm... I'm not even gonna touch that. Wise choice. Anyway, Kazar stuck around in the Savage Land, hung out with the X-Men some, defeated the Shenarians. The Shenarians? Alien invaders. They, uh, teamed up with Claw for a while. You know, the usual. Wait a minute. Does that mean Sheena the She-Devil is an alien? Her name's Shanna, not Sheena, and no. She's human, too. Or was. I think she's functionally immortal since she died and got resurrected with Man-Thing's blood in a Wolverine series. Should I ask? Absolutely not. Is she British too? Shanna? No, she's a New York City zookeeper. Huh. Yeah, but after Shanna's favorite leopard got killed, her boss told her to take the leopard's cubs to an animal preserve in Africa, and she decided to stick around with the cubs and fight for animal rights. Oh, that's kind of sweet. While wearing their mother's pelt. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 158 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera and our triumphant return from a three-month hiatus. Yes, welcome back to us, and also welcome back to you, the listeners. We missed you. We missed every single one of you, personally. That's right. Although it occurs to me, Jay, if the listeners had been, like, binging this, if they're listening to this after the fact, it'll be like, we never left. Good. Maybe good? I don't know. Will they really appreciate us if we never left? Speaking of appreciating, um, we, there's nothing like recording long distance to make us re-appreciate, you know, the studio space that we were, were in, so we should say we're still kind of troubleshooting our current setup. We're also working with a new producer. Between those two things, things might be a little bit rocky for the first few episodes back. Thank you for bearing with us in the meantime. Just pretend it's like your favorite show went on hiatus for a while, then got a new showrunner, and the new showrunner doesn't feel quite right, but then eventually they pick up. It's kind of like when- No, that's not what a showrunner does, Miles. Oh, well, I'm not in television. I'm in podcasting. I don't know these things. Dude. <laughs> Dude. Well, anyway- uh... Dude, I, I, I just want you to know, just to make this real clear, that I am literally missing the Defenders premiere for this. Like, T got tickets, and I told her I couldn't go because I had to record the podcast. You were a brave soul indeed. Your valiant sacrifice shall be remembered. She was like four rows in front of Charlie Cox. Oh, man. I've never been nearly that close to Charlie Cox. Or any other Charlie. Or any other... Well, never mind. Anyway. So, gosh, it, it's so weird that it's been three months. What have you been up to? Uh, you know, I'm uh, hanging out in Portland, Oregon still. I made a podcast about Thor. Wait, wait, you podcast cheated on me? I mean, it was about Thor. I thought our agreement was just about X-Men. Dude. Dude, uncool. Like, I know we're not married anymore, but there are, some things are sacred. And thus, Jane Miles explained the X-Men returns and vanishes immediately. It's okay. I mean, I, I, I don't forgive you, but I'm willing to put aside my seething re resentment in order to actually record. Well, I appreciate it. And listeners, if you want to check out the object of Jay's ire, it's called The Lightning in the Storm. It was fun. It's 13 episodes. 
It's actually pretty delightful. It's got uh, Elizabeth Alley, who has co-hosted or guest co-hosted a number of episodes of this show, except they're talking about Thor. Indeed. And I'm not on it. Although I talked about Thor a bunch on this show, like every chance I got, so it's not all that different. Did you get it out of your system? God, no, of course not. Well, I'm I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed this episode, because really, I don't think we've got any Thor content on this one. you You can probably find somewhere to edge some in, but yeah. I'll see what I can do. But Jay, what about you? What's going on in your life these days? Oh, God, I don't know. Um, oh, I finally got on Instagram. That's a thing. Oh, and I moved to New York and got married. That's also a thing. Congratulations on both. Thank you. Anyway, so we have some X-Men to talk about. We actually have a lot of X-Men to talk about because it occurred to us, we've been gone for three months. And I don't know about you listeners, but for us, we sort of forgot some of the details, some of the finer points, some of the dozens of characters. Does that mean... In fact, it does. It's time for a recap. That's right. And the best thing, since we're going to cover the uh, recaps from a bunch of different titles, I get to say a thing I like to say, like, a lot of times. Go for it, buddy. Previously on X-Men. Thanks to a group of cyborgs called the Reavers and a magical identity rewriting hand mirror portal thing called the Siege Perilous, the X-Men are no more. But there are a bunch of unaffiliated characters running around in their books, so, you know, close enough. We've got Wolverine, Jubilee, and a newly ninjified and awkwardly race-bent Psylocke. They've been getting into trouble in Madripoor. As one does in Madripoor, it's sort of the national pastime. I mean, it might actually be, like, law that you have to. <laughs> yep. Oh my god, what if Madripoor were like a Calvin Ball Nation, where the only law is that you can't follow the same law twice? Okay, I'm just imagining now Tiger Tiger running around dressed like Calvin, except there's an actual No, Tiger Tiger, tiger would be Hobbs, obviously. hobbs obviously. Uh, listeners, thank you for joining us for 158 episodes or 157 and a bit. We'll miss you very much. Good luck finding another podcast. And then our podcast ended twice in the first 10 minutes. We are professionals and we are so very back. It's been a while. So we have our Madripoor crew, right? We also have a de-aged and now re-aged, we'll get to that, Storm. She's been stealing stuff with her new friend Gambit, a Cajun thief with energy powers and also sexiness powers. We've got Banshee and Forge, uh, one former X-Men, one now new on and off X-Men. Has Forge ever really officially been an X-Man or just hung out with them? I mean, he is right now, but I think this is the first time. He is right now. They've been looking for the missing X-Men, and they've been just sort of on the margins of things, largely ignored. And finally, we have Rogue, who is is running around the Savage Land. Uh, she lost her powers while fighting a zombie version of the personality of Carol Danvers, which Rogue had previously absor- absorbed and was subsequently rescued by none other than Magneto, Master of Magnetism. Okay, so we have our four X-Men semi-teams. Thankfully, it's a lot simpler for the other group. And except for for Rogue, all of these guys are currently in the same place. Uh, There are a few other missing members. We'll get to those guys in just a minute when we talk about some of the recent plot. But first, the New Mutants. So, after quitting Professor Xavier's school and abandoning poor Headmaster Magneto... He'd gone kind of evil in their defense. Well, true. But now they have a new leader, the mysterious and gruff cyborg soldier Cable, who's basically better at everything than everyone. The team lineup is pretty deprecated at this point. Um, They've only got Cannonball and Sunspot from the original team, and Boom Boom and Richter from X-Factor's rescued scrappy teams. I gotta say, if you're gonna import a member from somewhere else, you could do a lot worse than Boom Boom. And maybe a little better than Richter. Aw, aw, that was mean, man. I like Richter so much later, and I like him some now, but he's no Boom Boom. He is no Tabitha Smith. Arguably no one except for Tabitha Smith is, and even she's kind of iffy on it sometimes. (laughs) There is that. Looking at you next wave. 
So they are currently based out of the basement of the X-Mansion, underneath all the rubble from when it got blown up way back in Inferno. That is right, there is more Inferno Fallout forever. It is always Inferno. It is Inferno today, tomorrow, and yesterday. I mean, we are recording this in the hottest part of summer. Oh my god, speaking of Inferno. So I mentioned I moved to New York, right? Right. The Rainbow Room is real and it's open again. Wait, the Rainbow Room? Like where the Ghostbusters got eaten by that evil elevator during Inferno? Yes! Jay, don't go there, you- Yeah, where Havoc and Madeline go! Okay, you and T cannot go there, you're gonna get devoured by an elevator, you're gonna get very confusing continuity-wise, I'll have to explain it, it won't make any sense. No, it'll be great, I'll get an alternate timeline with Sweet Beard and stuff. Well, okay, there is that, I do recommend Sweet Beard. Oh, and then I guess die. Mm, damn it. I don't recommend that part. Anyway, the New Mutants are sort of a preemptive strike force now, they're mostly fighting Cable's equally mysterious, blade-covered nemesis, Strife with a Y. That's how you can tell he's edgy. I mean, that on all the blades. I mean, does that even count as a pun at that point, Jay? What was that? I think it was basically stating the obvious at that point. It's not really a pun. Okay, that's entirely fair. What about X-Factor? Now, these days, the original five X-Men have gone public and vaguely respectable. Hot damn! They are living in their sentient spaceship ship, which is right now a Manhattan skyscraper. And Cyclops and Marvel Girl are raising Cyclops and Madeline's baby, Nathan Christopher, who has early onset force bubble mutant powers, implying that he's going to be telekinetic. And he also might be telepathic at this point. Jean at least has a pretty strong telepathic connection to him, despite herself not having any other telepathy. Do you remember that movie, Three Men and a Baby? I'd like to suggest some changes in the premise to make it far superior. Five mutants, one baby, powers, will turn into a time-traveling, gun-covered clone. Far better comedy! Leonard Nimoy not even cold in his grave. And you pull this out? <laughs> Miles. Miles. Now, of these characters, all of them except for Rogue and Magneto are currently living under the X-Mansion. That's 18 X-Men and it's probably too many, but it's not as many as they could be because they lost some members in the Extinction Agenda, the most recent event with which we cut off coverage. So let's do a quick recap of that while we're on this recap train. Okay, what do you say, Jay? Three episodes worth of content? I think we can cover it in, like, a minute. Go! Once we did a whole year in one episode, so I'm not too worried. Point. So there was an anti-mutant island nation of Genosha, kidnapped some of the heroes, and all three teams got together to save them. Genosha was, as it turned out, being run from the shadows by the severed head of Cameron Hodge, the former founder of X-Factor and one of the masterminds behind Inferno, who got immortality from a demon deal and is now running around on a big robot spider scorpion with a cutout of himself hanging around his neck. I really like to think that that entire thing you just said is just written in very small print on the business cards he hands out. Alternately, maybe he has very large business cards. You know, no, I think, I think Cameron Hodge is the kind of corporate asshole who would have something really vague and probably verbed on his business card. Verbed? Verbed. Like, you know, ver as in verbing words language. Oh, okay, that makes sense to me. Well, anyway, the consequences of the extinction agenda were many. One, Warlock died. The best space team died. Warlock died really unceremoniously and, like, with minimum fallout, and it was deeply depressing. Storm and Wolfsbane got turned into mindless mutates, but Storm escaped that um, via some machinations by the Genegineer. Not Cameron Hodge, different guy. And was re-aged to her pre-de-aging age. And Wolfsbane was given her mind back, but she's only got it when she's in wolf or hybrid form. When she's in, in full human form, she goes back to uh, mutate state of affairs. 
Now, Havoc was temporarily brainwashed into working for Genosha. That was something that happened when he came out of the Siege Perilous. Um, some of the X-Men had their memories in such a race. He came out thinking that he was a Genosian magistrate. Oops. But he stuck around after the event ended with Wolfsbane to rebuild the nation after Hodge and the president died. Oh yeah, and Dazzler's just off in California somewhere doing her Dazzler thing. As she does. So everybody is finally talking again. All of the X-Teams are talking to each other. I mean, you know... Except poor Excalibur. They're off in Britain, and we'll tell you what they've been up to the next episode that covers them. So you wrote in this outline that the, that Excalibur thinks the X-Men are dead, and I don't think that's necessarily true. I don't think we have any real evidence of that. My, my theory is that they've just hit the point where it would be super awkward to call after this long, so they're waiting for the X-Men to call first. Like, like when you know that someone who you know really well who knows that you live there, is in town, but you don't really know what they're up to, and it might be awkward for you to get in touch with them, so you wait for them to get in touch with you, because of course they know where you are and that you're local, but then they don't, and then they're only there for a few more days, and it just gets weird. Oh, geez, I'm going back to Florida in November. Now I'm even more nervous about it. No, no, it's okay. Um, you're the X-Men in that analogy. Oh, uh, I guess that's fine then. Although I gotta say, being the X-Men in an analogy, that sounds very dangerous. You're telling me... One of, one of the things that's weirdest about coming back, not after not because of the three-month break, but because we're coming back right now, is talking about X-Men and talking about mutants and questions of mutant issues and mutant rights at a time when it feels like the, the nation and the government are, are actively and enthusiastically debating, like, my real basic civil rights. I feel like you could take any given Senator Kelly's speech and just switch out a couple words and odds are real good that it's come up in an interview with someone on Capitol Hill in the last couple weeks. I feel like Senator Kelly would have been a lot more eloquent. I feel like Senator Kelly would have been a lot more humane, which is a kind of terrifying thing to say. Like, he was a dude who actually occasionally questioned his own stances. I know. X-Men does definitely feel more relevant than it has certainly in, in my memory. But it's also, like you're saying, it's kind of hard to talk about because of that. You know, there are times when you can say it's it's a metaphor and it's a good metaphor, and then there are times when it just feels like looking at the shit you're going through in real life the rest of the time from another angle, only these guys can fly. And I think that's part of the appeal, for me at least. I mean, you know, mea culpa, I am like Captain Privilege Elemental myself, but at the same time, having these aspirational heroes who are part of a persecuted group, being able to follow them and see them every once in a while just have this great grand victory, it's cathartic. And for me, at least, it kind of gives me hope. For me, I don't question that they're as important now, if not more important than ever. They're just really hard for me to read right now because, again, you know, you mentioned you're, you're coming from a very different stance. This is stuff that has the potential and in some cases, you know, very directly to impact my life. Every, every aspect of it, from my living situation to my marriage, to my legal name and identity, to things like whether I'm going to be able to get a job and on what grounds employers can discriminate against me. Fair enough, yeah. Like this is, there is, oh, healthcare. There, like there is, there is no part of my life that is not potentially impacted by the stuff that's been going down. I mean, it's it's pervasive in ways that I think I think mutants make a very good metaphor for. If you're an X-Men reader who is is not grappling with these issues right now, in which case, good for you, congrats. But it makes it makes the mutant metaphor feel like it's very much for other, for people other than me because I don't really need something else to drive home that particular lesson. I am living it right now. That makes a lot of sense. So with that, let's talk about some goddamn dinosaurs. 
Well, we will shortly, but first, let's talk about what the rest of the X-Men are doing before we get to Too Many Dinosaurs with the story from X-Men 273 called Too Many Mutants. Or, whose house is this anyway? So the X-Men take prompts from the audience, and very quickly, uh, Storm, Cyclops, and Cable put together a musical about a Swedish astronaut adventuring... Dude, I would watch the hell out of this. Oh god, I would too. I have I have strong I have a strong suspicion that at some point Brett White has done this very specific thing that we are describing. <laughs> Probably. Like I I seriously I would be surprised to learn otherwise, but alas, as far as I know, it is is not recorded for posterity. So I guess we're on to this issue. And man, this is a uh, speaking of too many mutants, it, it could just as easily be titled "Too Many Pencilers." Yeah, so this issue is what's referred to as a jam comic. That's where you have a bunch of different artists and or writers. Each do a couple pages of the story, and they sort of pass it along. If you recall X-Men Heroes for Hope, the old benefit from the 80s to uh, help with hunger in Africa, that was one of those. So having our first big issue that all has all the team members together, all the different teams are interacting after the Extinction Agenda, having that be a jam comic is an interesting choice, and I'm not really sure what to make of it. Well, in this case, it's helped by the fact that it's a gem between a lot of artists who are working in very, very similar visual styles. I think if you were a young reader reading this when it came out, you might have noticed a little bit of variation in the art, but you probably wouldn't blink twice. Yeah, the first time I read it, I didn't notice at all. I just figured that, you know, the art varies from page to page. Okay, that seemed normal to me. So that raises a question. Was it a jam comic or was it just an issue that had to be put together very, very fast? It seems deliberate, especially with the great big names on this comic. I mean, we have freaking John Byrne mm -hmm. coming back to the X-Men for this. We do. Yeah, that's a bit surreal. It's also, you know, I mentioned that the title could easily go from too many mutants to too many pencilers. And that's not the only point where the comic feels like an echo of the X line itself. That's right. We have a lot of uh, critiques of the line, in fact, from some of the characters, which we'll totally get to. But for now... Who do we have? So to start with X-Factor, we have Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Iceman, Beast, and Archangel. From the X-Men, we've got Storm, Wolverine, Banshee, Jubilee, Psylocke, Gambit, and Forge. And from the New Mutants, we have Cable, Cannonball, Boom Boom, Richter, and Sunspot, although Richter and Sunspot don't actually show up in the issue, just in the roll call on the first page. And in addition to this plethora of X-Men, they've also got a lot of enemies amassing around. They've got the Shadow King, they've got the Hand, they've got, you know, everyone and everything else. And the question is what to do about all of this. Um, Cable has some ideas. Do unto them what they've surely got planned for us. Hit them hard and fast. We got the power, people. Past time we used it. Surprisingly, that is also Cable's OKCupid profile, word for word. <laughs> oh, wait, okay, so you know how before I said that that big list of uh, descriptors should be on Cameron Hodges' business card? I changed my mind it should be on his dating profile. No one should ever, under any circumstances, date Cameron Hodge. I'm just saying, different people are into different things, no. and maybe they... No. <laughs> no. I, I am officially, this is me, officially, on the record, speaking on behalf of the podcast, kink-shaming anyone who is into Cameron Hodge. Oh, well, I hope none of them are listening. I would feel so bad. Your preferences are bad, and you should feel bad. You shouldn't feel <laughs> bad, actually. You should feel fine, but you should probably not pursue this particular avenue, because don't do that. Cameron Hodge is horrible. Down that road lies decapitation and other awfulness, and honestly, I really don't feel like he'd have a working understanding of consent at this point. Well, Storm is none too pleased with Cable's assertions, and his OkCupid profile, presumably. Who do you think you are, Cable, to speak so? You know nothing of us! Not the X-Men, nor X-Factor, nor New Mutants, or of the dream that brought us together. Do you, Storm? 
Do any of you anymore? Splintered into a handful of teams, running all over the map. No focus, less direction. Okay, okay, Chris, calm down and let Cable finish his line. But seriously, you're right, because this does really seem like it's Chris Claremont commenting on the direction that the entire X-Line has taken for a couple of years now, at least. Yeah, there are there are a couple of points where it, it goes very voice of the author, but that in particular, I think, really, really speaks to the problems the X-Line's having at, you know, right now. Remember, this is a line we've seen go from one book to a handful of very, very closely connected titles to an increasingly wide range of work with an increasingly wide creative team and increasing editorial prominence at Marvel. Um, when Claremont took over the book, it was a little fringe title. Now it is the biggest seller and it's getting a lot of editorial attention and editorial mandates and editors are messing with the stories. Marvel's messing with the stories. They're pulling in superstar artists. Um, writers are, are getting, getting sort of shelved, getting pushed to the side in terms of the actual process. And they're getting increasingly frustrated. And this is this is the unrest that we're going to see lead to eventually a full relaunch of the line and a complete creative re-envisioning of the X-Men. And as far as where we are right now, though, I kind of have to wonder, like, we see Storm and Cable having this debate. Clearly, that's some authorial stuff going on there. But I wonder how much of that is Chris Claremont and how much of that is Jim Lee, because from what I understand... Jim Lee's increasing influence as an artist largely was used in the direction of let's make the X-Men feel like how they used to feel. Let's make the X-Men feel like they did under Chris Claremont and John Byrne or Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum at a time when all the all the teams were united, when there was less going on, when they were doing more stuff together. That's definitely what leads us to the X-Men we see in the relaunched X-Men number one, which is going to come very, very soon. At this point, I think Claremont is still pushing back at least to some extent. And you you can hear that. You can see that through some of the older characters who are talking about Xavier's vision, talking about the direction things have gone. One of the interesting things to look at is that one of the primary of those, and one of the ones who objects most strongly to the idea of preemptive strikes here is Cyclops. Right, because later on, he's going to be doing the preemptive strike thing himself pretty hardcore when he's in his revolutionary leader phase in the early 2010s. Right, that's going to be much, much later. And it's interesting, though, over time to watch that evolution in specifically Cyclops' perspective because he starts out as the most vocal advocate of and adherent to Xavier's dream and in some ways becomes ultimately, you know, the person who who tears it down. And I've been rereading a lot of early aughts and, and mid-90s X-Men and I think it's a much, much more organic process through that time than a lot of people give it credit for. Like, it feels like a really, really credible evolution to me. Yeah, I think it's totally earned. I agree. I mean, Cyclops's evolution from Boy Scout to Revolutionary Leader, Wolverine's evolution from lone badass to school teacher, I buy them both. Meanwhile, though, Cyclops and Storm are trying to figure out what the hell to do with 17 X-Men. Cyclops says, well, we've got this enormous you know, spaceship. Well, that's currently a skyscraper, but still it's going to be safe because non-mutants can't get in. Yeah, it's got a lot more space than this basement we're all currently in. But Storm is wondering whether even if leaving for Australia was a mistake. I mean, an alien craft would be even more removed. That's not Xavier's dream at all. They were supposed to peacefully coexist, and you can't do that from that far away. I think that's kind of a spurious argument. It's it's like saying, you know, we are going to be isolated from humanity because we live in an apartment building with a doorman. Or we're going to be isolated from humanity because we live in a tall building. It's not like they can't leave ship. And also, moving into a tall alien skyscraper is not really the same thing as 
faking your own death and becoming invisible to electronic surveillance. Ah, but you forget that X-Men Volume 2 Number 1, which unifies the teams, won't launch for a few months yet, so we have to have an arbitrary narrative reason to still keep them apart. Thanks, Aurora. Mm. <laughs> well, anyway, Cyclops and Jean and Storm talk about what they should do about the New Mutants teacher, because Professor Xavier is gone, Magneto seems to be going to his villainous ways and fighting heroes again over an act of vengeance, although Storm does point out, hey, the dude tried, right? He tried so hard. He tried. And Cable, well, that guy's got problems too. Storm points out that maybe the three of them, her, Jean, and Scott, aren't the best people to be making the decision. Are we fit caretakers any longer for Xavier's school and his dream? Or has the time come to turn that role over to others? as it was handed first from him to you, and you to us. And that's an interesting line to have right here, right before Claremont's going to stop writing X-Men. Yeah, again, this, this feels like Claremont musing on the state of the X-Books and the state of the line, because again, this has been under his stewardship and then his stewardship and Louise Simonson's for so long. And he and Louise don't know at this point that they're going to be off the line soon, but in retrospect, wow. Yeah, I, I don't know to what extent the writing may have been on the wall at this point. Um, it's, I think by, by now, at least based on the stuff that I've read in interviews I've seen, they were both getting pretty frustrated and, and seeing the shape of the line change considerably and wondering how to really deal with the new talent. Because one of the things that you see that's just a defining feature of the, the first long chunk of Claremont's run on X-Men is that it's all about the relationship between writer and artist. You know, you see the tenor of the book change very significantly between, say, Byrne and Cockrum, Cockrum and Smith, and so forth. And you see Claremont's writing style changing along with the art. But for that to work, you gotta have kind of an equal give and take. And at this point, there are artists coming in, and the artists are prominent enough, they're big enough names, and editorial is invested enough in them that they can essentially wrestle away the whole process. Well, meanwhile, the other X-Men are doing their other X stuff. Which, in Banshee's case means having a hot holographic date with evil sexy Moira McTaggart, who, as you may recall, is currently somewhat possessed, or at least significantly tainted by the presence of malignant uh, telepathic presence, the Shadow King. He'll be a real big deal coming up, and in fact, he's been a pretty big deal already. But they holo flirt, they holo kiss, and in the background, Beast is scandalized. Oh, my stars and garters! So Beast gets out of there because it's getting super awkward. You know, in Banshee and Evil Sexy Mora's defense, the furthest they go is like a fairly chaste kiss. Well, the furthest they go on panel, who knows what kind of a holo sex they may be having. Probably fairly unsatisfying holo sex because I don't think we're at the era of solid light projections yet. I'm just saying, you do what you can, right? I mean, Sean, you know, he's he's been on his own for a while. So holo sexting aside, um, what, where does Beast go? What's, what's he up to? He's uh, off to see Forge at this point, yeah? Yeah, he goes to talk to mutant inventor Forge, who is currently trying to figure out what to do about Wolfsbane. She got stuck in the mindless mutate form back on Genosha, and currently she can only have a mind of her own and not just turn into that weird, like, slave personality when she's in her wolf form. That's no good. There are definitely some after effects to the Extinction Agenda, and I like that they're acknowledged here. This is probably Claremont's last quiet issue, as we, and a lot of fandom, calls it. And I like that he's addressing all the little bits. You know, you talk about this as a quiet issue, but the way it pops between characters, tonally and content-wise, it's completely different. But pacing and transition-wise, it's a Regency farce. It totally is. And speaking of frequent transitions, hey, let's go to the Danger Room, where Cannonball and Archangel are training together. Oh, hey, it's two dudes who fly. <laughs> yup. 
Archangel's being all tricky and using his experience to win, but it's really nice seeing the teams overlap. I mean, I remember when the X-Men and the New Mutants used to train together and mentor each other all the time, and that was great, and it's so nice to see it again. Ooh, ooh. So, another thing that happened when we were on hiatus is that I learned Archangel's middle name. Oh, right. We were texting about this a while back. Right. His middle name is Kenneth. And, yeah, which which is a fundamentally hilarious name. Sorry to anyone out there named Kenneth. Um, you either won or lost the name lottery, depending on how you're looking at it. But especially as a middle name, because now we can now we can properly full name him. We can call him we can get Warren Kenneth Worthington III. You get down from there. Warren Kenneth Worthington III, you reassemble that wall that you just crashed through. Warren Kenneth Worthington III, I hope you're planning on picking up all of those flechettes. I am not your maid. <laughs> I love it. So Warren Kenneth Worthington III and Sam Guthrie are fighting around in the danger room doing their danger thing. Right, and later on, another pair trains in there, namely Wolverine and Gambit. That's right, just like we had two flyers before, now we have two excessive badasses. Yep. Except Wolverine is maybe not quite up to his regular levels of badassitude. He is really not holding up well in, in the danger room. Jubilee's observing from above and is, as we've seen her again and again and again in the last few issues, frustrated that Wolverine, who's really still not up to capacity, is pushing himself way past where he can reasonably go. And Gambit, of course, handily beats him. Right, and this is kind of like... I don't know, it's like in any given role-playing game, or I suspect professional wrestling, although I know very little about it. Oh, dude, you you really should. Having now actually seen some, I can say that you would be super, super into it. I, I probably would. But regardless, that's how you show that a brand new character is super badass. You have them kick the ass of the previous badass, and that's what we have. As Wolverine's lying on his back and Gambit's standing over him with his staff to his throat, just saying, Bang, you did. He sure did that. So, outside, Storm is moping. Gambit's been telling her that it's time for them to get back on the road and be thieves. You know, it's like that horse from Over the Garden Wall. Oh, yeah, the, I want to steal! Exactly. But Storm disagrees. Uh, Storm feels that they need to go find Lady Adelaide so that they can get sent back home and Beatrice can be returned to her human form, right? Right, and so Aurora says, Here I belong, Gambit. Here I stay. These are my friends. My family in every sense save blood. They need me, and I them. Now, does that does that count as an, an IU for drinking purposes? Uh, I think it might. Anyway, it's our first episode back. Go ahead and take a drink. And while you're drinking, Gambit shall rejoin. Then do us both a favor, Cher, and start acting to part. When you're getting pep talks about leadership from Gambit, you know you're fucking up. It's like getting pep talks about villainy from Apocalypse. But this is interesting because, once again, it's very easy to look at that dialogue and read criticisms of the X-Line that are now being remedied or at least altered into it. I mean, Storm's basically saying, I've been running away for too long. It's been fun being a thief, but the X-Men are my home. This is where I belong. I have to stay here. Like, I can very much see fandom saying exactly that, saying, get the team back together. Have a real team of X-Men in the book, the Uncanny X-Men. Modern fandom, on the other hand, would totally just break into let it go at this point. Yeah, well, there is that. There, there are some fairly obvious lead-ins to that from here. But um, speaking of ice, Iceman has apparently locked himself into what apparently is the only bathroom in the Xavier Mansion, leaving an increasingly panicked Boom Boom knocking on the and door. And once Cable shows up and makes some threats through the bathroom door, Iceman leaves, Boom Boom rushes in and finds... 
a completely frozen over bathroom because basically that joke just never goes away. I was going to say it never gets old, but it really gets old like the third time. But I really do love that with all of these characters, with 17 mutants crammed into a single issue for the first time, that one of my favorite little dynamics in the X-Comics has not been forgotten, Iceman and Boom Boom being total assholes to each other. You freeze my behind, Buster. Watch me fry yours. As she chases after him. But let's take a step back and talk about this because... Somebody mentions that there's only one bathroom. If we look at the art- Boom Boom. Boom Boom specifically says there's only one bathroom. I mean, this is, again, being shared among 17 X-Men, New Mutants, X-Factor members, etc. Maybe the X-Factor members go home and use the one on ship. Except, obviously, Iceman didn't. But that's not consistent in the issue. We, we see it as multiple stalls. We see it as a single stall bathroom. Sometimes it's got showers. Sometimes it doesn't. Right. This is a jam comic art-wise, like we said. And that gets very confusing and a little misleading here. So, so what is a genuinely entertaining scene- it pulls a little bit away from it. No, no, no. I can no-prize this. Do it. What do we know that Charles Xavier has access to that not a lot of people do, provided by Reed Richards that can, for instance, change the shape and nature of objects or spaces? Are you referring to unstable molecules, Jay Edidin? I am, and my theory is that in order to adapt to the changing needs of X-teams, the X-Men basement bathroom is in fact constructed, or the basement in general is constructed partly out of unstable molecules. And in this case, their instability has become a liability and the bathroom is randomly switching between modes. That could get horrifying. I mean, can you imagine even just one of those fancy Japanese toilets uh, having its programming just uh, stop working consistently and it's just shooting water in various directions, making soothing sounds at volumes that are way too high? Well, that got upsetting and vivid fast. I'm just saying, Shi'ar technology, I bet the Shi'ar have fancy toilets. I bet they have really fancy toilets. I mean, they're bird people. Like, how do their genitals even work? Do they have cloacas? I hate you. <laughs> I want another divorce, like, right now. <laughs> we're double extra divorce, having already ended the podcast twice this episode. Yes, we're coming on strong. Yeah, no, this is good. We're, we're, we're getting back up to form pretty fast. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> let's see. So, so speaking of bathrooms, Jean Grey, who has apparently learned her shower etiquette from Storm, wanders into a different bathroom, or possibly the same bathroom, but now it's got shower stalls while talking to Psylocke and just strips down and gets in the shower and continues the conversation. Okay, so as one might imagine, the steam from the shower is strategically snaking over her naked body, covering all, you know, the bits. So is that just fortuitous? Is that just, like, censorship serendipity? What's going on here? I mean, she's telekinetic. It might just be deliberate. So Jean puts on her clothes and puts away her telekinetic censorship tendrils and decides that it is time to find the missing X-Men, Rogue, Longshot, and Dazzler. But I gotta say, shouldn't she be thinking about Rusty and Skids, you know, the wards of X-Factor that were rescued by and then convinced to join the Mutant Liberation Front? Like, you'd think Jean would be more concerned about them. Hey, Miles, I made a list of everyone who cares about Rusty and Skids, and it was you. Oh, but, but I like them. Rusty Collins and Sally Blevins. They, they have costumes that coordinate with each other kind of nicely. No, I know, they're lovely kids, and Sally also has fantastic fashion sense. She does. But they are they are not at the, the center of anyone's mind, and apparently doubly so at this point, which, to be fair, you know, the team's juggling an awful lot of X-Men. We also forgot to mention Longshot in, in our initial recap. Sorry about that, he just wandered off at some point. He went to ago. find himself. So Jean goes onto the astral plane using Cerebro, which is interesting because, remember, Jean Grey does not have telepathy at this point. She just keeps interacting with telepathic stuff a whole lot. Well, this is a version of Cerebro, and we've seen versions of Cerebro over the years, too, that have been varyingly automated. Um, we saw Cyclops with a, a version of Cerebro that literally just gave him, like, computer screen updates when it found mutants. So, 
it's perfectly possible, I think, that there's a version of it that's hacked, at least to the point where if you know how to use it, or if you know how to, what to do with your brain in it, you don't actually need the powers it provides. Well, that may those. be true, but she definitely gets onto the astral plane to find some mutants, and she runs into the Shadow King, you know, the great big bad of this entire era. He is right there just waiting to eat her brain and starts doing so pretty successfully. Yeah, Jean may be able to use Cerebro, but without her telepathy, she pretty much has, has no psychic defenses, at least until Psylocke comes in and helps her out by stabbing her through the head with an imaginary knife. Right, because Psylocke's psychic knife does kind of whatever the story requires. Um, Miles, Miles, mm -hmm. Psylocke's psychic knife is the focused totality of her powers. It totally is. So Jean wakes up back in the real world with no memory of just what happened, and I guess Psylocke didn't see it, but thankfully we the readers know that the Shadow King, yes, in fact, is going to be a big, big deal. This is one of the first times we've seen Psylocke thwart the Shadow King. It will not be the last, and in fact, that's going to become a major, major character note for her later on. It totally is. But meanwhile, it's decision time, once again with Storm, Cyclops, and Jean Grey. So X-Factor has decided that they're going to go their own way, at least for now. They don't belong at a school anymore. They've graduated. Also, they have a sweet alien skyscraper. The X-Men, however, are looking more like a team than they have been, well, possibly since the 60s. They are all in the blue and yellow X-Men uniforms that Evil Sexy Moira designed, including Jubilee. I hate them. I want my own colors back. But they don't have too much time to admire how well they're coordinated because suddenly a speeding convertible with a normal-sized woman and very large man arrives. It is none other than Lila, Cheney, and Guido, and they are there to take the X-Men to space to rescue Professor Xavier. We're going to come back to those guys in a few episodes. For now, though, we're going to head to the Savage Land to look up one of the missing members of the team. That's right, and it's interesting that just as the teams are getting back together, Claremont says, you know what, screw it. Let's go check on Rogue and Magneto, totally unrelated to what's going on. It was kind of like, I'm, I'm always iffy referencing South Park, but it was kind of like that time on South Park they were about to reveal, like, I don't know, Cartman's mom or something, I forget what. And then the next episode was just Terrence and Philip farting a lot. It's almost a little bit of a troll by Chris Claremont here. Is it? Because they definitely, they have space sections in each of, each of the next couple issues. We're just not talking about them. And we should say, by the way, there is a whole damn lot of content gemmed into three issues. We've got the gem issue, uh, 273, that's all over the place. 274 is pretty much normal, but then 275 is a giant size issue because it's a special milestone number, I guess, as a multiple of 25. But thankfully, we're only going to be covering half of that, specifically the Savage Land stuff to finish up Rogue Story. The space stuff that the rest of the X-Men are doing, that'll be in our next Uncanny episode. On the downside, Zaladane. So Trish Tilby, ace reporter, well, you know, reports. An earthquake has hit Punta Arena in Argentina, and experts are connecting it to these weird towers that have appeared all across Antarctica. Um, we should say, by the way, this issue is plotted by Jim Lee and only scripted by Claremont. I think this is one of the first where we see that particular combination of credits. I believe so. So the president of the United States says he'll help with any UN aid actions to the affected areas. Uh. A different time. Well, presumably this means that it is in fact S.H.I.E.L.D. time, which is a shame because if there is one person and one organization set to help with weirdo science, it is obviously StarCorps run by what, the one and only Super Doctor astronaut Peter Corbeau, and I deeply resent that he is not part of this storyline. Right! Super Doctor astronaut Peter Corbeau! He's amazing at all the things, from space, to statecraft, to dinosaurs, to S.H.I.E.L.D., to, I don't know, Rogue's costume, to basically everything! Why can't we bring him back? We haven't seen him in years, Jay! I miss Peter Corbeau so much! Miles, Peter Corbeau 
is with us always. Peter Corbeau is in our hearts. I mean, he probably is, like in a tiny little robot ship, taking care of whatever impurities and medical problems we might have. He's on a fantastic voyage. He's doing everything at all times with his multi-science. That's actually one of the most reassuring things I've ever heard. Oh, man. Like, if you're ever scared at night and you're worried there might be something in your bedroom, just imagine Peter Corbeau smoking a smokeless pipe, sitting in an easy chair next to you, just nodding sagely and approvingly at you. Oh, I thought you were going to say, if, if you ever wake up in the night worried that something's in your bedroom, it's probably Peter Corbeau. And that's fine, because he would do you no harm. He's got a great he reason wouldn't. for being there. It's true, it's true. He would pop through on some vital scientific mission to save the Earth, be very apologetic, not damage your stuff, and, like, take you on a sailing trip later if you wanted. It would be great. Well, anyway, that unfortunately doesn't happen. And in the Savage Land, which of course is in Antarctica, in this dinosaurs are still alive tropical paradise at the South Pole. The X-Men have hung out in the Savage Land a number of times, and Magneto specifically took over it for a while. Um, it's full of dinosaurs, it's full of weird kind of cave-dwelling people. Um, also, there are zebra people, but they're not really around right now. Also, there's a lot of sorcery. There is, you know, magic and dinosaurs, two great tastes. I sort of think of the Savage Land as like the Kirby continent. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Well, anyway, Magneto is currently hanging out with Rogue, who he found here after she came through the identity-erasing Siege Perilous and saved her from the spirit of Carol Danvers that was kind of in her head. Long story. The two of them have been joined by Kazar, um, otherwise known, as you learned from the cold open, as Kevin Plunder. <laughs> okay, Kevin. <laughs> I, I can't take him seriously anymore. And this is interesting because clearly there's been a jump in time since the last time we saw Magneto and Rogue. They've been joined by Kazar. Rogue's costume has gotten a lot skimpier, that sort of thing. That's kind of cool. It makes it feel like there's more going on in the world, even when the readers aren't there for it. But they're surveying the wreckage of a bunch of S.H.I.E.L.D. ships. Apparently, Zaladane, who rules the Savage Land using the magnetic powers that she stole from Polaris a while back. God damn it. I hate Zaladane so much. Do we, do we need to go into her deal? Um, she insisted that she and Polaris were related because part of her name is Dane and Polaris's last name is Dane. And then she used a machine to steal Polaris's powers. Polaris got huge and super buff and also slightly evil, although I think that was something else. That was the Shadow King sneaking in. Um, and Zaladane's a, a, a semi-immortal former high priestess of Garrock, and she used to be the high evolutionary's assistant, and now she's got magnet powers. That's really what you need to know. Yeah, basically. So Magneto is opposed to her, and so is S.H.I.E.L.D., but her anti-technology magnetic field is wreaking holy hell with their various airships. So Magneto is thinking, as this all happens, about how, although he leans towards solitude, that's often not how it works out. Yeah, Magneto is narrating heavily throughout this issue, so... Expect a lot of that coming, but for now, here's what he's got to say. Yet for all that, for all of life replete with share and far more of rage and pain and suffering, as harshly given as endured, still I manage to find myself with allies. And dramatic internal narration. Always. So they don't have too much time to internally narrate because suddenly the Savage Land mutates, which, given that we just had Genosha going on and they have their own mutates, they need a new name. These are the ones working for Zaladane. Where did these guys come from? They were created by somebody, right? Well, they were mutants in the Savage Land. Back in the 60s, Magneto used some, I don't know, magnetism to make their powers more powerful. Now they've rebelled and they're working with Zaladane and they are not fans of their former boss. No, they are not. Um, they, they come in and tried their best to take out our heroes. 
and things are not going well for our heroes. Magneto's powers are significantly sapped by Zaladane messing with Earth's magnetic fields, and Rogue really just doesn't have her powers back at all following her um, tragic confrontation with zombie Carol Danvers. God, I love describing stuff like this, matter-of-factly. Comics, everybody. So, Rogue is in trouble. She tries to use her power-absorbing power to kiss one of the mutates. It doesn't work, and he gets all creepy. Magneto is having none of this. Right, because um, if there's anything Magneto knows, it's the best way to turn a fight around is tragic exposition. I hear my daughter Anya scream as she burns before my eyes. Hear Isabel's gasp of surprise as she is murdered. Two I loved but were unable to save. Only avenge. It will not be that way with Rogue. Whoa, 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 rewind. These are not names that we've encountered before in X-Men, are they? Well, if you read the classic X-Men backup stories of the reprints of Claremont's early runs, specifically number 12 and number 19 respectively, then you would have heard of them. But basically, Anya is Magneto's daughter who was killed by an angry mob who were after him because he was a mutant. And Isabel was a doctor that Magneto worked with and kind of had a romantic thing going on with. She was killed by the CIA when they realized that they didn't like Magneto very much. Man, with every retcon, Magneto's backstory just gets sadder and sadder and sadder. Like, some characters get more complicated, he just gets more tragic. Well, his tragedy and narrating works because he is able to kick the crap out of the various mutates, and in exchange for info about Zaladane's planned attack on Magneto's own citadel, Rogue convinces Magneto to not kill all the mutates, to let them live. So he just seals them underground to presumably starve to death, and bubbles off in a giant Jim Lee-esque magnetic bubble into the sky. Now... Zaladane may have taken over much of the Savage Land, but Magneto still has access to one of his old citadels. And there he is able to work out Zaladane's plan. She's got six towers over magnetic nexuses, and she can use them to amplify her magnetic powers and thus dominate the world. Because again, remember, this is Marvel. It's technically late Bronze Age, early Modern Age Marvel, but magnetism is still just pure magic. It totally is. Now, he once wanted to use the same strategy himself, but he decided not to because it would destroy the world for mutants as well. That's very reasonable of him. Do we get further narration as to his thought process here? In fact, and I hear the echoes of Der Fuhrer's voice in the radio of memory, smell the awful stench of the sick and dying as the cattle cars brought the condemned to Auschwitz. I wear red, the color of blood in tribute to their lost lives. And the harder I try to cast it aside to find a gentler path, the more irresistibly I'm drawn back. Okay, but the color he actually consistently wears is purple or fuchsia. I mean, you know, there can be coloring errors in blood, but- Wait, are they predators? Maybe, but regardless, this is really the hardest that X-Men has ever leaned into Magneto's Holocaust-related backstory, and I think that works. I think that really adds a certain degree of believability and pathos and gravitas to Magneto that no other element of his backstory did, so I feel okay about this. Here's the thing. That's an aspect of Magneto's backstory that I think generally works pretty well. I think having it come up front and center when he's fighting pterosaurs in the Savage Land because Zaladane maybe is not quite the best context. You may be right. I mean, if you want a more serious take on Magneto's Holocaust backstory, there's always Magneto Testament by Greg Pak. For now, yes, we have Auschwitz references and pterosaurs. I mean, there are a lot of better takes on this and better contexts for him to ruminate on it. Yeah, this is this is weird. This is this is interesting and strange. And he's he's finding though um it, it this all brings something 
else up for him too, which is that he is finding himself for the first time really identifying with the X-Men, going up to stop a supervillain who's doing something that looks ruinous. Now, maybe this is how they felt going up against him all those times. Right, fighting against impossible odds to save the world. It's interesting to me that he doesn't identify with the X-Men because he was the headmaster of the Xavier Institute for quite a long time. But if you'll recall, what really defined his experience during that period was not identifying with Charles, was the fact that he felt that Charles Xavier had miscast him and you know left shoes that Magneto could never fill. That, that, that he wasn't empathizing with, with the X-Men or with Charles Xavier. He was panicking over his inability to do that. Well, regardless, that night after the victory, Magneto wakes up from more Holocaust-related nightmares to see Rogue, who, powerless, wakes him up and the chemistry between these that Jim Lee's art sells, god damn. Yeah, it's just teased now, and I don't think that's something we're really going to see realized at all until Age of Apocalypse, but um, it's going to come back up a, a few times later. And actually, one of my favorite depictions of the romance-slash-not-romance between Rogue and Magneto, uh, because of course he can use his magnetism to block her powers, and right now she just plain doesn't have any, but is, is actually in X-Men Legacy. I don't remember if it was the Mike Carey or Christos Gage run, but it was that era, and it was done beautifully. A love triangle between Magneto, Rogue, and Gambit? Who'd have thought that would work, but it totally does. Okay. Well, regardless, it's time to go to war. There's no time for smoldering, so he gets dressed magnetically, his costume appearing from his neck to his toes, which is pretty sweet. So, wait, we tell people to take a drink when someone's costume rips off. Should they, like, spit their drink back out here? Uh, maybe just pour one out. No, maybe that. So they go to battle, and indeed, it is fight time. So, Zaladane seems initially to kill Magneto, but the cavalry arrive to save the day. Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. show up. But there are no Howling Commandos, you know, Commandos that are howling. Yeah, that's some bullshit. I don't know if I can accept Nick Fury without Howling Commandos. Well, Magneto is in fact still alive, although he's banged up, and Fury has to stop one of the other soldiers, it turns out, from a Russian branch of the UN alliance, from killing Magneto. Right, this is Colonel uh, uh, Samayanov, and he lost a son on the Leningrad, which you may recall if you have a remarkable memory for such things, a better one than mine, in fact, is the, is the submarine that Magneto sank in Uncanny X-Men 150. Right, when the military was coming after him. Uh, which Magneto, of course, takes as what it is, which is another opportunity for angst-ridden internal monologue. Again, a cry from the past. One father to another. In anguished grief for a slain child. At the time... My action seemed quite appropriate. The situation thus resolved. Um, Nick Fury makes it clear that no one is going to be shooting anybody within this group, and they will all be teaming up to fight their common foe. S.H.I.E.L.D. heads off in their mysteriously functional helicopters to fight Zaladane, leaving Magneto to wonder whether what he has to do will cost him the trust and approval of Rogue. And what he has to do is coming right up in half of Uncanny X-Men number 275. We're just going to be covering the Savage Land parts here. Yeah, they're in space for the rest of it, which is great. Actually, it's it's much more fun than the Savage Land because Zaladin's boring. Although she does have some pretty intense Mr. Sinister realness going on here. Oh man, we'll get to her style. But S.H.I.E.L.D. and our heroes fly toward their target. Apparently, the explanation for why they could use those helicopters is that as long as they don't get too close to the anti-tech field, it's all fine. Yeah, whatever. Rogue is really annoyed that she has to wear body armor since she doesn't have powers. It's interesting to see this armor because it looks very much like the Genosian Magistrates, and I think what it is is that Jim Lee just really likes drawing this kind of armor, you know, with all, like, the little capsule bands around your arms and the great big guns and the facial buttress head sock kind of things. Yeah, it's a style of armor that I feel like 
defined science fiction for a while. And weirdly, it's something I think of as, as a very Mobius, too. I can totally see that, yeah. Occasionally, um, it's and it, and you, you see it echoed across different media over time. But yeah, it's, it's a very, very, very Jim Lee style. Well, as they all prepare for the attack, Colonel Samayanov, he's a little bit obsessed still with Magneto. He talks about how they have non-ferrous helicopters so they can get close to the magnetism-wielding Zaladane. Well, again, they're fighting a magnet person. It's not like they brought them in case Magneto showed up. Well, right, but he also keeps referring to Zaladane as the self-styled mistress of magnetism and Magneto as the so-called master of magnetism. He just keeps going until he pulls out a great big Jim Lee-style gun and shoots Magneto in the back, blowing him half up and blowing up the helicopter that was right near him. Uncool, dude. Highly uncool. Totally uncool. And Samayanov's allies also think so because they don't even have Magneto to defend them now and they're about to get attacked by cavemen on pterodactyls. God damn it. Every time. Every goddamn time. This works really well, though, because Samayanov's interactions with Magneto, it fits a couple themes that we're really starting to hammer home. There's Magneto's legacy of hate. There's the foolishness of vengeance. There's the propensity of pterosaurs to be total assholes. Right? Well, on the ground, thankfully, some of our heroes have survived, specifically the ones with names. While Magneto is missing, Rogue, Nick Fury, and Kazar are all doing okay. Yeah, they're holding their own against some dinosaurs, and for those of you who were regretting your lost drink when Magneto got dressed, you'll be happy to know that Rogue's armor has been shredded, leaving her in her dubiously attached Savage Land bikini gear. So? So, you can take that drink now. Everybody else who did not have a name is dead, yay for arbitrarily lucky heroes, and it's that same sort of Jim Lee-style bloodless gore that we often see. Sort of shadowed ribs and stuff being visible sticking out, but not very much blood and not very much detail. I wonder if the lack of blood is Lee's call or the colorists, but man, I gotta say, I actually find that style creepier than super bloody stuff. I can totally see that, yeah. Because there's just there's there's a sense of not not just you know hor this this body has undergone horrible trauma. It's also that something is real off from the way biology standardly works. You make a valid point, and Jim Lee's art does as well. Well, Zaladin is using her wacky magic technology to suck out the powers of Magneto. Well, it certainly does suck. <laughs> right. Well, this process apparently involves both Zaladin and Magneto being naked with their bits blocked by convenient smoke or steam or something, naturally. Uh, sort of like Jean's shower, although we don't have a telekinetic here. Is it magnetic steam, perhaps? I'm gonna say it's magnetic censorship steam. Okay, and we've got we've got a couple other people there, too, um, whom long-term readers might recognize as Shanna the She-Devil and uh, Nuriel, who is chief of the United Tribes of the Savage Land. And also the mother of Colossus's child from way back when. Oh yeah, that's a thing. I always forget about that. It totally is. So the process is working pretty well and also has the convenient side effect of showing more of Magneto's tragic backstory, like, I don't know, in the air, projected on a wall, in his retinas, somewhere. The reader gets to see it, at least. But meanwhile, outside, a skunk mohawked savage lander runs toward the citadel fleeing a T-Rex. But the T-Rex is an illusion, and the lady is, of course, really rogue, wearing a tiny Savage Land bikini. You know, she stops with an aside to her erstwhile comrades, Kazar and, and Nick Fury, to say it's a good thing Magneto left his projector, because we knew Magneto had a holographic projector, and we couldn't have somehow extrapolated that they might have access to this technology otherwise. Anyway, lucky coincidence, that. It is very handy. So our heroes, having uh, used their illusory powers to defeat the Savage Land guards, burst in and find that Magneto is like skin and bones. He's super, super thin. 
and he's trying and failing to fight the open-robed but conveniently shadowed Zaladane and her mutates. Wait, are her mutates also open-robed? I like the idea of that being the uniform, a sexily open shadowed ba bathrobe for all of them. Well, maybe they were just lounging around. It's possible. But regardless, there's a big fight, and suddenly, conveniently once again, Rogue's powers come back, because apparently, when Magneto used his weird Savage Land machinery to restore her after her battle with the extracted persona of Carol Danvers a while back, her powers were still present, it just took them a while to return. Gosh, that's some lucky timing. Right, they return exactly when she needs them. And of course, we get some mid-battle exposition about this. This is one of my favorite terrible comics tropes, by the way. Um, when there's exposition in the battle that takes more time or would take more time to think through than the actual fight that's going on behind it. I always just figured they were talking really fast, like really fast. Oh, wow. So Micro Machine style, should we do the rest of the dialogue here in, in that mode? <laughs> Maybe you could. I don't think I'm capable. I don't know. I didn't warm up that much today, but let's continue on. Anyway, Samyanov is about to use the chaos of the battle to once again try to kill Magneto. Wait, I thought Samyanov was dead. I thought everyone but, but Fury and company died. What, what, what was that? What's up with Samyanov? Uh, he was a prisoner of Zaladin as well, and he's here. Oh, well, that's convenient, I guess. Magneto catches Samyanov in the act, though. I am sorry for your son, Colonel, which is more than I ever heard for the slaughter of those I loved. Your daughter, you mean? And that absolves you of any crime? I never said it did. For who we are and what we have done, Comrade Colonel, we are both of us condemned. Except that in X-Men number 200, Magneto was tried and actually exonerated, so that's not technically true. No, he's like metaphorically condemned. But he kills Samyanov and is actually preparing to also execute Zaladane. Rogue tries to convince him not to, pointing out that he found a better way with the X-Men. You know, he's just been talking about how much he identifies with them. Maybe he should just, you know, keep going with that instead of turning his back on it. And for those efforts, Rogue, what have I accomplished? The new mutants were left in my charge and they suffered for it because I tried to pattern myself after Charles Xavier. I am not Charles Xavier. Thank God. I will never be Charles Xavier. I was a fool to try, as was he for believing I could succeed. And then he just murders the hell out of Zaladin. And this is a very believable heel turn. Magneto's really been thinking a lot about what tyrants can do when left unchecked. He's been looking at his path of peace, his path of understanding, of attempting to let people live and hope that they will change. And he's seen so many examples in his own past of that just not working. I wonder, though, whether it makes sense to describe this as a heel turn, because heel is a role. It's not just that it's the bad guy. It's the guy you're supposed to root against. And with this, Magneto is stepping into possibly the most popular role of the early 90s, which is the gritty, morally gray mercenary. That's true. He's very much an anti-hero here. And I gotta say, this is one of certainly my favorite versions of Magneto. Like, Magneto works when you can empathize with him, when you may not agree with what he does, but you can understand why he's doing it. When, if you will, you will agree that he made some valid points. And... This is that Magneto. It may be a more classic version of the character than when he was wearing a great big M on his fuchsia shirt, but it's one that was classic because it worked well. And Magneto, at this point, flies away, leaving Rogue to cry a single tear as he closes, you know, their bit of the story with one more bit of Magneto's position. My choice is made. My destiny's set. And from this fateful crossroads... We go our separate ways. So, 
that pretty much wraps up the story. One one thing I kind of want to address is that I am pretty sure that Zaladane stays dead. Yeah, she's one of a very few villains not to come on back. I mean, maybe she showed up briefly back in the Marvel equivalent of Blackest Night. What was it called? That was Necrotia. Right. But re- that is, that's, that's what brought Doug Ramsey back. Mm-hmm. And I feel okay about that. I mean, Zaladane, she works in very limited contexts, but I kind of feel like the stories have done all they really could with her, and anything after this would just be kind of redundant, kind of like Celine showing up again and again and again. Almost worse, Zaladane started out as a supporting figure who stepped into the role of lead villain without really ever quite earning it or having a lot of direction in it. She felt very much like a cookie-cutter villain, again, despite her fantastic, her eventually fantastic fashion sense. And honestly, I don't think the Marvel Universe is, is very much worse for her loss. Magneto may, in fact, have been right on this one, at least from a narrative standpoint. And so that's the first part of the X-Men's return. We have the X-Men united as a real team, knowing that, that X-Factor's alive, knowing that the new mutants are alive, everybody is, if not cooperating, at least aware of each other. And Magneto and Rogue splitting up in the Savage Land um, as Rogue will return to her life as a superhero and Magneto will go on to a full heel turn in X-Men number one. You, meanwhile, have questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, My friend and I were recently talking about whether there were any examples of superheroines having male sidekicks. The only examples I could come up with were Zachary Zatara and Zatanna from DC, and then Hellion and Emma Frost and Elixir and Danny Moonstar. I'm not sure these examples are applicable anymore since Zachary disappeared after the New 52, Hellion and Emma had a falling out, and Danny was depowered. There are tons of examples of men mentoring either gender. Why is women mentoring men so rare? Uh, that would be sexism. I mean, basically that. Like, you do have a few good examples. Right now in Generation X, for instance, Jubilee is indeed mentoring all the kids. Yeah, but I don't think that counts. I mean, it's not... Jubilee is basically filling in as a teacher figure, which is a role that we do see women taking in comics. It seems like this listener is asking more about hero sidekick relationships. So, you know, Robin to a character's Batman, for instance. Okay, so I don't know. Who do you think would be a good uh, superhero in the Marvel Universe to have a male sidekick? Um, many of them. I think my favorite's probably Captain Marvel or She-Hulk. That would be great with either. Yeah, I mean, I think think, um, that... I think Wiccan should totally be Magic's sidekick for a while. I think that would be pretty cool. Oh, Yana Rasputin having Wiccan as her, that would be amazing. They would be really, really entertaining together as a, as a superhero duo. Over in the Hawkeye solo series starring Kate Bishop, she actually does kind of have a male sidekick. He's more of her hacker buddy in the background, kind of like Ned in Spider-Man Homecoming, but still. See, that's not a sidekick. That's the guy in the chair, and that is a different role. I don't think you can treat that as equivalent because those are, those are, you know, being part of a superhero support team doesn't make you their sidekick. I see what you're saying. So yeah, you're totally right. Basically sexism. And that's sad because we need more of that. It would be super rad. All right. So another anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, could you explain Mr. Sinister's powers? Oh man. Um, is it just regeneration or is it more complicated than that? Oh boy. Okay, so Mr. Sinister has a lot of power. Some of them are from when Apocalypse modified him to be the sort of immortal goth dude that he is right now. Some are from him giving himself new powers through the genes of others. In no particular order, thanks very much to the Marvel database, he has cellular shapeshifting, a regenerative healing factor, superhuman stamina, speed, durability, strength, and reflexes, telepathy, power cancellation, telekinesis, concussive blasts, force fields, flight, teleportation, but that might just be the technology at his headquarters, technopathy, and, these are definitely from Apocalypse using Celestial Tech, immunity to aging and disease, and the ability to survive without sustenance or air. 
Also, he can use genetics to do pretty much whatever, including taking over other people's genetically pre-modified bodies upon dying. That's not a power, that's just super science. Well, it's not an inherent power. It, it is a power in that it's something he's capable of doing. Um, the thing is, Mr. Sinister basically has whatever powers the plot calls for at any given time. He has one of the most poorly defined power sets in the Marvel Universe, and I think that we are all the better for that. That's right. Also, Miles neglected to mention what may be Mr. Sinister's most important power, which is that he is just glam as all hell. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast. We are here thanks to our Patreon subscribers, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the podcast from a range of fictional characters and entities. Today, I believe I am turning over the stage to the newly re-villainized Magneto, the master of magnetism. Past the Rubicons I have crossed, and through the crucibles that have burned away what little gentleness remained, one question persists. Who shall Magneto be? Uncompromising savior to his people at the cost of his reputation and his soul, like the infamous comics and art, follower of a gentler path of peace and coexistence, like the naively hopeful Walker Trot, or merely a villain with delusions of self-importance. Whichever path he takes, I think we can be confident that he will be narrating himself all the way. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kurt Lloyd, host of the fun and funny comic book cover story, which you can find on YouTube. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan arts, recaps, reviews, and more. This podcast is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, New Mutants rushes towards its end on tiny Liefeldian feet. And the arrival of... Don't say it, don't say it. If you say it, we have to cover it. Deadpool. Deadpool.